Let us pray. Holy One, we thank you for your word spread out through all the earth and given specifically to us for our growth, for our life. We pray that you would speak into us again this morning, that you would help us to hear and to see anew your word to us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome back to this season of creation. This month we are in the book of Genesis, meaning beginning. And I'm excited that we get to consider together the story of Babel today, which doesn't ordinarily get nearly enough attention in the church. For some reason, this episode appears in most children's Bibles, but then as adults, we often stop talking about it for some reason. Maybe we think we have it all figured out. Maybe we figure we've got this one down, so it doesn't bear repeating. But then again, as they say, it's not what you know, it's what you think you know. That just isn't so. So in that vein, I'll start with a slightly different telling the story uh, this morning, more in line with the creation account that we read last week, the one in which everything was good, including the human beings. And God's main intent was creation rather than condemnation. I think it helps to continue imagining God as, as a divine gardener, the way Jesus often did, scattering seeds and seeing what grows We may recall from last week how in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, God created plants and animals and humans and put them all in a garden. And God told the human beings to to till the earth and to take care of it. God would come and walk with the people in the cool of the evening to see things, how how things were getting on in the garden. It was beautiful. And this was all good in and of itself, even though God wasn't quite done creating. After all, gardening isn't just a one-and-done kind of thing. You have to keep coming back. It requires ongoing work. So another command to the people at the beginning was to fill the earth and to master it, to expand the plantings. God wanted to see the human beings flourish not just in one little garden, But all over the face of the earth, the seeds were put there to multiply. And that's what the people did. They fanned out and increased in number, discovering new places, naming more plants and animals as they went. This, too, was beautiful. But then in today's story, we read about one group that got tired of moving. They came to a broad plane and they just sat down and said, this is far enough. Let's build ourselves just one city with one tower that reaches up to the heavens so that we will make one name for ourselves and not have to be scattered throughout the face of the whole earth. It would appear that these particular city founders were really into the idea of unity They wanted to be one, which in itself wasn't really a bad thing. But God was nevertheless concerned about this development, in part because, as I mentioned last week, God's also about plurality and diversity. 
God created not just one type of plant or animal, but all sorts. And even with human beings, it wasn't good for there just to be one. If anything, God seemed to want to see more and more complexity in creation. Unity in itself is not bad, but sometimes it leads to uniformity, which can be a diminishment of God's creation. And it can be dangerous. For instance, consider the historical example of the Irish potato famine. When the potato was introduced to Europe from the Americas, the people of the British Isles were so excited about it that in some instances they planted nothing else. Instead of lots of different gardens with all sorts of crops, they planted just one crop, potatoes, and only one variety of potatoes at that. Well, this uniformity was all good and fine until there was a potato blight and it wiped out the potatoes. And since there was nothing else planted, the people starved. That's one danger of uniformity. Similar things continue to happen with monocrop farming today. It's an ongoing problem. But anyway, back in the beginning, God saw what these early city planters were doing and God decided, unlike with the rest of creation, this was not good. It's not that the people of Babel were necessarily evil or they had malicious intentions, but God saw the city and the tower they were building and said, if as just one people, speaking one language, they've done this, imagine all the trouble they could get into. So God intervened to help the people, as God does, with some additional creation. God said once again, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. And it was so. This complication then led to the development of new languages, and it caused the people of Babel once again to be scattered over the face of the earth as had been originally intended. It's like the people were seeds that just needed a little more help being broadcast so that they'd continue to grow and develop in new and different ways. This became the blessing of diversity of different cultures. Now we should note that in this story, God did not destroy the Tower of Babel itself. The text doesn't say that. That didn't seem to be necessary. Maybe the tower itself was not a big issue. But breaking the people into smaller groups did seem to have a side benefit of keeping them more down to earth. They stay closer to the land, less concerned about making a name for themselves, hopefully more apt to praise the name of their creator. So in the end, I see this as a wonderful story of God's ongoing care and provision and creation. Is that how you see it? Is that how you've always read it? Now I'm going to share three simple reflections on what this good news could mean for us. Three, because just one interpretation would not be good. God has created us to have different perspectives. Two reflections would be better, but That's still not really diversity. There should be at least three, right? So implication number one, the J-curve. 
I learned about this pattern recently, which I now see everywhere, as if it has been woven into the fabric of creation itself. You can see an illustration of it right here on your uh, bulletin insert. The J-curve of resilience, it's called. The J-curve illustrates how there are peaks and valleys to our life experiences. Things will seem to be going pretty well for us. We'll be on the upswing for a while, getting better and better. But then there'll be some crisis or loss that will bring everything crashing down, at least for a little while. Like maybe you get sick or you lose your job or a loved one dies. That's when stability drops. Feels like, feels like chaos, like being scattered over the face of the earth. None of us like these experiences, but we can't avoid them either. I read one book that claims that these life quakes, as the author describes them, they happen on average every 18 months. Yeah. Sometimes there's big ones, right? Major life events. Other, other times they're smaller trials and tribulations. They've also been described as waves, right? Can you picture that? Like waves of grief hitting you over and over again, washing over you, sometimes knocking you down. When you've been hit hard and brought low, sometimes it feels like you'll never recover. You can feel devastated and lost. But over time, you do recover. And as you find your footing again and life becomes more stable, your sense of well-being increases. Life gets a little bit better, a little bit better until the next big wave hits. That's the J-curve. So what's this got to do with the story of Babel? Well, it's often hard to understand why God lets us get hit by these big waves. Don't you think? Especially when we're at the bottom of a J-curve. We wonder, why did God confuse the people's language? They were just trying to improve themselves. They were just looking for unity, for a sense of stability and permanence. But nevertheless, God seemed to just want the people to grow. It wasn't good for them to hunker down in one place and focus on making a name for themselves. That kind of scenario is not good. God wanted something more, something better for the people, a more diverse creation. And that's also what the J-curve accomplishes. When we do come out of it, we rise as new people, stronger, more resilient. We find ourselves in new places, reaching new heights. And when we recognize it as the Jesus curve, then it can even become the doorway to eternal life. That's reflection number one, the J curve. Here's a second for the, for the sake of dialogue. This one's a little less up in the tower, more practical down to earth. Let's talk about communication styles. Yeah. Do you ever get frustrated trying to get things done in committees? Do you sometimes find group process rather difficult? 
you're right, it's probably just me. Yeah. Probably. Sometimes I think to myself, life would be so much easier if people would just communicate the way that I do. You know, so that we could all be on the same page of one mind. Seems like we would get a lot more done that way. If other people would just conform to my way of doing things, the world would be a much better place. After all, there is a right way and a wrong way of doing things, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. So it would be really helpful if we could all just be united in doing it my way. I'm just saying. But then again, of course, if everyone was just like me, then we'd all have the same shortcomings and the same blind spots, and we probably wouldn't get as much done. At least we, wouldn't, we would end up just do, not doing anything new or different. It would all be my ideas done the same way every time. Hopefully this sounds super obvious to you. <laughs> I like to think that we, we kind of understand how diversity leads to more effective teams because we've all got different gifts to contribute. It's pretty basic. But isn't it amazing how often we can act as if that is not the case? Most of us would still prefer to work just with people who are like us or who we think we get along with the best. There is comfort in uniformity. Birds of a feather flock together, as they say. And it feels more stable when we're surrounded by people who talk like us and think like us and often even look like us. Life feels easier when we can focus on making a name for our intimate, cohesive, monocultural group. Then we can pretend that all the conflict is out there among all the others. And yet from the beginning, God has been trying to tell us that this kind of uniformity and stagnation is not good. God's intent, especially for the church, is that we would be scattered among our diverse neighbors, like salt, like seed, in order that the reign of God might grow. Now, does it feel good to be a minority out in the world, to be different, to be perceived as strange? Of course not. But God still disperses us for the sake of blessing so that we would do more than just build towers or sing our own praises. And I wonder sometimes if God still scrambles our communication for this very reason as a sign that we have become too inward focused. When our groups and teams don't seem to be on the same page, maybe it's because we're missing something. Maybe God wants us to leave our projects behind and go out and seek greater diversity, to meet new people and experience new places. It might be humbling to go that route. Like the people of, of Babel, we might not want to go there at all. But what if it was for our blessing and also for the blessing of all God's world? That's the second reflection. We've got the J-curve, communication styles. Now for one more, a third and final thought for today in regard to this rich story. 
The study of Babel got me thinking about small groups, too. By small groups, I don't just mean the churchy kind, like uh, small group Bible studies and fellowship groups and whatnot, though obviously I love those, too. They're great. But there's also a, a sense in the story of Babel that God is choosing smaller bands of people in general over the mighty and magisterial groupings. Again, it doesn't say in the text that God destroyed the tower or even the city of Babel that they had already built. So I, I don't want to go as far as to say that God doesn't like large groups simply because they are large. But I do want to suggest that maybe from the very beginning, God has found those arrangements to be somewhat suspect for a variety of reasons. And that God's preference does seem to be for more modest-sized arrangements. This trend continues throughout the scriptures, you see, with God starting a new nation from a single couple, Abraham and Sarah, who then had just a couple of children, Ishmael and Isaac. Then the nation of Israel, it was never big or impressive either. Even the capital of Jerusalem was minuscule by the standards of ancient empires. The smallness, seemingly insignificance of God's people. It's always been an unlikely strength because it has meant that we have had to rely on God rather than just our great size. It's a matter of faith. The same thing can be seen in the New Testament with the first churches all having been small by modern standards. The churches Paul wrote to are thought to have been mostly house churches with, you know, usually no more than 50 or so people on a good day. And in spite of the ways that some Christians have bought into the idea that bigger is better, history has also proven small communities to often be more effective in the long run, too. For example, I was reading a, a, more about the Benedictines this week. Benedictines have always organized themselves in small communities, living and working together in small groups. Together, they have never been big or powerful. Because their communities have always been small, they've always struggled to survive, too, which seems like a problem. And yet, nevertheless, their traditions and communities have now lasted over 1,500 years. They've seen empires rise and fall. Christian traditions change dramatically. They've seen societies reorganize around new technology and new forms of culture. Individual Benedictine communities have taken shape and died just like individual congregations do. But their tradition has persisted. And their gifts of hospitality and stewardship have had an outsized influence on Western civilization, helping to bring about more peace, more democracy, better provision for the poor, the kingdom of God in our midst. Wouldn't it be great if our little Presbyterian congregation was like that too? We have our, our own gifts to contribute to God's world. We don't have to take on the rule of St. Benedict in order to be effective. But like them, we could also have a greater appreciation for the beauty of small things. 
for the ways that God uses the small and seemingly insignificant things of the world to have an outsized impact. We could celebrate the sense in which God has appreciated our smallness from the beginning of the world. The way that we are embodying God's original design for humility and service simply by being ourselves. Even in our smallness, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God is pleased with us just as we are. So there you have three reflections on this wonderful little story of Babel. The J-curve, communication styles, small groupings. It's not just a single voice or a dialogue, but a community of thoughts. What would you add to the telling? What is the insight that God has given to you and you alone? I won't ask you to share with a neighbor today since we have communion to get to, but keep in mind that our God loves diversity and has created us to be creative people with different perspectives to celebrate and to share as we too are scattered like seeds throughout God's good earth. Amen. Yeah.